<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. Hope that you had a lovely weekend. We are in the month of June now. We are entering the dog days of summer. Lots of stuff on the calendar. I know that the weather here in Florida is particularly hot and sticky. I hope that it is at least a little less uncomfortable for some of you elsewhere across the country. So we've got a lot to get to in the program today. We have at least four topics that we want to touch on. Right out of the gate, let's talk a little bit about something that we have discussed on numerous shows by now, which is this kind of lingering tension, or as the case may be, lack thereof, between uh, Mark Levin, the the great one, as he is known, the syndicated radio host, and yours truly. We, we've discussed this on, on numerous podcasts here, so it's worth fleshing out because, as we will get to shortly, I actually ended up appearing on Mark's program last Thursday night to have this debate or pseudo-debate, as the case may be. So take a step back a second. What set the table for all of this? Well, you know, Mark first kind of took a shot at me back way back in December. It was a bit of a substantive shot. I had written a column kind of urging the Republican Party to continue along its more nationalist populist trajectory. That column, if I recall correctly, was entitled Still Against the Dead Consensus. Mark didn't call me out by name at that time, but he had objected to it on his radio show. And I actually confirmed with him over email afterwards that it was about me, neither here nor there. But this thing starts to escalate a little bit in January. So what happened in January? Well, if you go back to early January, this was actually around the time that I was flying back to the U.S. from my trip to the Middle East. I think I was actually in Egypt, of all places, when this whole speaker fight with Kevin McCarthy actually took off in earnest. But if you go back to early January, what happened was Kevin McCarthy, who is kind of the Republican Party's company man, if you go back to the Young Guns program from the Tea Party era. Kevin McCarthy was there on the cover of that book alongside Paul Ryan and Eric Cantor, neither of whom, of course, are in the House anymore. He he really has been kind of the face of the Republican Party establishment for a long time. And after Republicans narrowly retook the House of Representatives, the red wave failed. But after they narrowly retook the House of Representatives, Kevin was kind of the anointed man. Everyone thought that he would automatically get the speakers. Not. Well, what happened? Well, you had a group of patriotic 20 conservative Republicans disproportionately, perhaps exclusively in the House Freedom Caucus, led by folks like Chip Roy of Texas, Andy Biggs of Arizona, Matt Gates of Florida, uh, folks like that. And they ended up making Kevin McCarthy basically go the distance. So Kevin McCarthy ended up winning the speaker fight, if you recall, after 15 to 20 ballots. I mean, this thing really dragged on for days. The House did not get regular order for days on end. And I wrote a column at that time. And on this show, we we ended up bringing on Eric Erickson, if you recall, in January to discuss it as well. I personally was deeply sympathetic to the concerns of the 20. Now, what did the 20 do? Well, partially, they just wanted to extract concessions. They wanted to return to so-called regular order, where these massive omnibus bills are not necessarily written at the very last minute behind closed doors in kind of a 24th hour, 3 a.m. sort of setting right before a massive deadline. They wanted the committees to start marking up legislation more. They wanted conservatives to have some influential perches on the all-important House Rules Committee. 
Various things like that. Um, but perhaps one of the major concessions as well was also the return of the single member motion to vacate the chair, which to strip away the legalese basically means that it would only take one uh, discontented or we only take one discontented Republican congressman or in theory, I guess, a Democratic congressman, but only, it would only take one congressman to force a vote to vacate the speaker's chair. OK, all of that is to say that the concessions from the group of 20 worked. They were able to basically get everything they wanted from Kevin McCarthy because, again, Kevin McCarthy is the Republican Party's company man, and he just wanted his job, and he was wholly willing and able to give away anything and everything that his conservative detractors and skeptics wanted. That is important for our friend Mark Levin because during this particular debate, Mark... Sean Hannity, a couple others were were very defensive of Kevin McCarthy, and I objected to that. I objected to that in a column I wrote at that time, and I was not alone. Many others objected to that as well. We thought that conservatives should basically be in lockstep here, supporting the group of 20 to get these concessions. So fast forward now a few months, we reach this debt ceiling deal that was finally inked. Joe Biden signed it this past Friday. Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden had reached this deal. We're not going to get deep into the into the weeds of this particular deal, but suffice it to say, it wasn't great. It was not a great deal for conservatives. But the point is twofold. One is it probably would have been even worse. It almost assuredly would have been even worse had conservatives not been able to extract these concessions and been able to wield disproportionate power even in a McCarthy regime in the House GOP. But second of all, The fact that this deal was reached in the first place does necessarily, I think, evince a lot of the legitimacy of the claims that the group of 20 were able to wage back in early January. I mean, if you if you do a basic kind of compare and contrast between the standalone bill that Kevin McCarthy, to his great credit, was able to rally around the House Republican caucus to pass a couple weeks ago, if you take that bill, which had, for example, a 10-year cap on discretionary spending, a full defunding of uh, Joe Biden's 80,000-plus new IRS agents, student loan, lots of other goodies in there that conservatives would feel good about. If you compare and contrast that with the ultimate deal that McCarthy ended up inking with Joe Biden, it looks a lot like a loss. So I basically ended up challenging Mark Levin to a debate on Twitter, and I I was kind of being cheeky at the time. I, I said that let's have a boomer con versus nat con debate a.k.a. boomer conservative versus a national conservative debate, bit of a generational divide here, obviously. You know, you know, Mark had taken some shots on me on his show. It was really just, I think, three or four weeks ago that he he went on a, a Kevin McCarthy-related segment, segue, and he called me a fraud, a pseudo-conservative. I'm not sure what else was going on there. So I responded to that in a monologue on this show a few weeks ago, and I challenged him to a debate. This debate was delayed a couple of times. I was supposed to go on. On a Wednesday evening a couple weeks ago, I ended up getting booted off for some guy named Ron DeSantis, who uh, went on Mark's show instead of me to talk about his then very newly launched presidential campaign. So we finally ended up having our exchange last Thursday, and I, I honestly had no idea what to expect whatsoever. Mark obviously has a particularly influential and disproportionately large microphone. There were hostilities. There were kind of vulgarities flying around, of course, um, disproportionately perhaps from his end. So I went in expecting the worst, but wasn't really necessarily exactly how it played out. So let's take a listen to how this segment opened. I don't think I'd do this or not. 
That isn't Gabe with other folks out there. Josh Hammer is the uh, senior editor at large at Newsweek and uh, host of the Josh Hammer podcast. Josh, how are you? Mark, it's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you very much. You got it. Tell me the difference, and I mean this here, between a natcom and I've never heard of a boomercom. Let's call it right there. So basically, go back and listen to the whole thing on Mark's podcast, which you can find everywhere you want, obviously, if you want to listen to the whole exchange. But the point is, the conversation with Mark ended up being exceedingly cordial and civil. Dare I say, it was outright pleasant. He gave me ample time to make my remarks. It was almost kind of a quasi-scholarly exchange of sorts, of, you know, like genuine kind of intellectual curiosity from his end, some from my end. We ended up discussing the McCarthy fight a little bit. You know, perhaps Mark was a little chafed by the not-so-great deal that McCarthy had signed with Biden, so perhaps that is one reason why he uh, backed off from kind of getting into the weeds of that McCarthy debate. I mean, the whole thing was really just a little surreal. I kind of came in there ready for a, you know, a policy wonkish debate about Kevin McCarthy's debt deal. I was thinking maybe we would transition to Ukraine, which is definitely a topic where Mark and I disagree. And the whole thing, you know, 20 minutes long, however long it was, was really just a genuinely pleasant and enjoyable back and forth. And Mark and I had a very nice email exchange afterwards where we basically said, like, let's let bygones be bygones all good. He said, he told me I did a great job. So anyway, I'm not tooting my own horn here. Really just kind of wrapping up for you guys the very pleasant end of this mini saga that's been going on for a few weeks, perhaps a few months, if you go back to the Kevin McCarthy fight back in early January or so. And it really is just a pointed reminder. And it's one thing that I have been thinking about for a long time now, especially as DeSantis has formally gone into this 2024 race, which is where we're going to go next right after a quick commercial break. But you know, look, there's a lot of tensions flying out there. There's a lot of name calling, even within the right, within the Republican Party, within conservative commentators and all of that. Some of that is necessary. Intellectual tension is is definitely sometimes a good thing. Iron does sharpen iron after all. But to the extent that we can remain united against a common foe that is almost here, there, and everywhere, going to be better than the opposite. So I'm grateful once again to Mark for his kind olive branch that was extended to me on his program last Thursday, which I graciously accepted. Thank you, Mark. And let's take it to that quick commercial break on the other side. Let's get into the 2024 stuff. We have a lot to talk about there as well. So I'm Josh Hammer. Once again, stay with us. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So 
so let's pick up right where we left off then on this point of remaining united against a common opposition there. You know, I think Mark and I were able to showcase that for a conservative media audience pretty nicely last Thursday when the whole BoomerCon versus NatCon divide, and I'm, I'm not pretending like there's not a divide there. You know, Mark and I definitely do disagree when it comes to certain issues such as the extent of free trade absolutism, things like that. But we did, I think, showcase for those who were paying attention how disparate factions on the right can come together, especially at a time like this when we have just an absolutely hegemonic opposition between the Democratic Party, the mainstream media, the Fortune 500, Hollywood, academia, you name it. I mean, all all the institutions that you hear about on a daily basis. So that takes us to 2024, this whole idea of staying united against a common foe. And I want to talk a little bit about one thing that I have seen really kind of boiling up this week in particular, but the past couple weeks is something that I've seen as well. And this is coming disproportionately from the Trump surrogates. So let's just kind of set the table a little bit here. So we had Dave Rubin on last week. Dave and I discussed this at some length. You can go back and check out that episode if you want to. But Ever since Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did formally announce his 2024 presidential candidacy towards the end of last month, a lot of us who, by my very own admission, spend far too much time on the Internet and in particular that utter and perhaps irredeemable cesspool known as Twitter knows there has been just no shortage of ridiculous mudslinging between the two camps, between the Trump camp, between the DeSantis camp and, you know, I'm cards on the table here. I, I, I genuinely certainly think that the overwhelming majority of those shots are being taken by the supporters, whether paid or unpaid, uh, perhaps disproportionately paid, but the supporters of the former president uh, directed towards the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. And one particular attack, I think, merits a bit of a response. And this attack, which is kind of inextricably intertwined with a particular framing of the 2024 Republican presidential primary basically goes as follows. You've seen Trump and some of his top surrogates over the past couple of weeks basically say, stop talking about the woke stuff, that voters don't actually care about this. Voters don't care about these cultural issues, these civilizational issues. They were like, oh, no one cares about this. Uh, we want to talk about the economy. We, we want to talk about this, that, anything, inflation, uh, you know, price of gas, all, all, all of that. And they're doing this for a particular reason. They're doing this primarily because you're not going to be able to out anti-woke DeSantis. He, he, he has defined that brand. No doubt about that. I mean, you know, you saw Casey DeSantis, uh, that, that, of course, is the governor's wife and his closest political confidant. You saw the first lady, Casey, out in Iowa this past weekend with her, I think it was a black leather jacket. It had like an alligator on it, and it said Florida where woke goes to die or something like that. I mean, this whole notion of Florida as being the place where woke goes to die has really become part and parcel of DeSantis's brand. If you think back to his victory speech when he was reelected as, as governor by 19.4 points, his, his speech was at his uh, party in Tampa last November. He has this line where he's he's very deliberately trying to channel Winston Churchill's famous speech 
where he says, we will fight the woke in the boardroom, we will fight the woke here, there, and we will never, ever, ever surrender to the woke mob. He's, he's very clearly channeling one of Winston Churchill's most famous speeches there. So the point is, from a Trump perspective, you're not going to out anti-woke Ron DeSantis. Again, he just has that brand down. All, all of the issues, the transgender stuff, gender ideology, critical race theory, even COVID. I mean, COVID to a large extent actually did become kind of a woke issue. I mean, the idea of, of vaccine mandates, perhaps in particular, where Florida was a leader in pushing back against that vaccine mandates were really weaponized as a tool, from my perspective, at least. They're weaponized as a tool by the bipartisan uniparty ruling class as a cudgel wielded to subjugate the deplorables and to keep them out of the various means of our everyday civic life. So the point is, you're not going to out anti-woke Ron DeSantis. So from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense for the Trump camp to shift the conversation or to try to shift the conversation to the economy. Here is my objection. My objection is that this is a ridiculously false choice. Is the implicit contention here that conservative voters that were Republican primary voters are not capable of walking and chewing gum at the same time, that they cannot process arguments about the woke ideology while simultaneously processing arguments about the price of gasoline at the pump, about lowering the price of eggs or chicken in the grocery store aisle? I mean, I mean, like, what the hell? How dumb do the people making this argument actually think that Republican primary voters actually are. I mean, uh, look, I, I, I do think that Ron DeSantis should probably talk even more explicitly, and I fully anticipate that he will, about some of these bread and butter economic issues. Look, from my perspective, I would love to see Ron DeSantis get in there in, in, in literal factories in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Toledo, Ohio, you name it, roll up the sleeves, do the everyman thing with with the blue-collar folks making forty, forty-five thousand dollars $45,000 a year. I would love to see that. But this idea that he's trying to steer away from the economic issues, I mean, he has a fantastic economic record to run on here in Florida. The unemployment rate in Florida is way, way below the national average. Florida has been the number one state for net in-migration since COVID started. You think people are randomly moving here because the economy sucks? I mean, are you kidding me? There has been tons and tons of businesses that have flocked into this state. But again, this idea that you can't do both of these things, that you can't simultaneously talk about the pernicious excesses of the woke ideology in the classroom, this idea that they're literally teaching pornography, and teaching is perhaps slight hyperbole, but there are readily available pornographic materials in no shortage of elementary school classroom libraries. I am not making this up, by the way. You know, this idea that conservatives talking about porn in elementary schools is a conspiracy theory, what nonsense. Max Eden of the American Enterprise Institute, a former guest on this show, had a wonderful recent op-ed on this exact topic, and Newsweek would encourage you to check that out. That's total nonsense. So th this idea that you can't simultaneously talk about woke bullshit, like pornographic materials in classrooms, like racialist indoctrination in, in the corporate boardroom, while at the same time talking about economic issues. I, I just find this utterly ludicrous. I mean, to a large extent, the issues actually directly overlap as well. You know, Florida had the Stop Woke Act. I believe that was from 2021, if I recall the year correctly, or maybe it was just last year, 2022. But the Stop Woke Act, which has been up and down the courts, it's, it's been stopped, it's been appealed. The current status of it remains to be determined. 
or the Stop Woke Act directly pertained to wokeism within the corporate boardroom. You know, Ron DeSantis as well has restricted, has severely curtailed the ability of pension funds in the state of Florida to invest in ESG DEI-related initiatives, basically saying to these funds that you actually have to do that which you have a fiduciary duty to do, which is to maximize your return to your shareholders, your pensioners, and so forth there. So these issues obviously relate to one another there. But I, I have to say that it is, again, it's a little weird, this line of attack coming from the Trump camp. On the one hand, it's not weird, like we just said, because you're not going to out anti-woke the anti-woke guy, Ron DeSantis. On the other hand, it's a little weird because the unstated corollary to this attempt to shift the conversation from the Trump camp is to actually move left on a lot of these woke issues. So, for example, you saw Donald Trump Jr. come out recently during the whole Bud Light ordeal with Dylan Mulvaney, the transgender influencer. Donald Trump Jr. basically used his clout to try to call off the attack dogs. He said, conservatives, you've gone too far here. You've made your point. It's time to go home any number of other issues as well. So what is the deal? I, I mean, what is Donald Trump's actual stance on biological males competing in women's athletics? What is Donald Trump's stance on transgender folks receiving, quote unquote, gender confirmation surgeries on the taxpayer dime while actively serving in the U.S. military, for example? That issue, by the way, being one where Vivek Ramaswamy actually went entirely off script as well this past weekend. So I just don't get it. I mean, this is a total false choice here. Yes, I would like to see Ron Asanas talk a little bit more frequently and explicitly about inflation and unemployment issues like that, where he has a fantastic record to run on here. But I find it very, very weird, very weird for the Trump campaign, which in its first instantiation back in 2016 ran on a fairly explicitly culture war platform to now try to kind of quell and tamp down the culture war fever and to just try to position themselves as kind of an economic warrior. I've seen a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of people who I won't necessarily name trying to kind of frame this choice that way. That is a false choice. You, the listener of this program, are way too smart. That is total bullcrap. Do not fall for it. Let's take it to another quick commercial break on the other side. We're going to talk a little bit more about 2024. We've got some new candidates in the race this week. Let's talk about that as well. Once again, I'm Josh Hammer. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So staying on topic of 2024, this week 
is seeing two, possibly three, additional entrants to the already fairly crowded 2024 Republican presidential primary field. First, worth pointing out who is not entering the field. So, you know, you know, we had this whole weird system in America in the year 2023, apparently, where you, you announce that you're going to make an announcement or as the case may be, sometimes you announce that you're not going to make an announcement. I mean, I mean, really bizarre either way. I mean, just say it, for God's sake. I don't really know why we need all this buildup in general. But when it comes to the latter announcing that you're not going to make an announcement, Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, earlier this week on Monday, confirmed that he is not running for president of the United States. Seems like a, a savvy move. I mean, it's virtually impossible to see what the path forward for for Chris Sununu is. He is a he's a fairly popular governor in New Hampshire, certainly trading off of his father's name. That's a former governor, Sununu, of, of New Hampshire. He's got a political royalty name there, but he has no path forward whatsoever. So good for him. I mean, for 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 saying that, for seeing that. He basically said that he is dedicated to to preventing Donald Trump from being the nominee and him getting in the field would only kind of muddle those waters, would, would muddy those waters. So good, good for him. But who is getting in the field this week? Well, Mike Pence announced on Monday that he is announcing on Wednesday, or at least he formally filed paperwork with the relevant regulatory body. We know how that goes. So Mike Pence is announcing his 2024 presidential candidacy this week in Des Moines, Iowa, I believe. Chris Christie is set to imminently announce as well. He is the former governor of the Garden State. And Doug Burgum, the sitting governor of North Dakota, is allegedly going to announce his candidacy as well. Now, if you're sitting there wondering who Doug Burgum is, I assure you that you are not alone. I work in this business full time, and I I kid you not, when I first read that Doug Burgum was running for president a few weeks ago, I literally paused for a second. I was like, wait, like he's a governor, right? I I like literally could not even tell you the state. I like vaguely remember that he was in a sparsely populated state somewhere in the middle of the country. But wow. Um, So I don't know what the hell that is about. I I mean, he is even more obscure than Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, who, you know, at least was a little more out there. Arkansas kind of maybe punches a little above its weight because of the fact that Walmart is there. Asa Hutchinson, I think, is a a total boomer con and has no business whatsoever running. But wow, I mean, if Asa Hutchinson has no business running, then Doug Burgum definitely has no business running. So I really don't know why all these guys are doing this, these extremely low single-digit folks. I mean, I guess it's just a fun PR stunt for some people. You get a fancy book deal, all that stuff. The incentives for all this are just totally messed up. But let's focus a little bit on Mike Pence and then maybe to a slightly lesser extent, Chris Christie, because they really are kind of the two slightly less obscure names that are announcing their presidential runs this week. So Mike Pence, there's a lot to say about Mike Pence. So your mileage may vary when it comes to Mike Pence, depending on many factors. One of them, of course, is whether you are all in for Donald J. Trump 2024. If you are all in for Trump, you probably loathe Mike Pence with a fiery passion because a lot of the unraveling of the once fairly cozy Trump-Pence relationship, of course, comes in the aftermath of January 6, 2021. And we're not going to get into the vice presidential debate over what role Mike Pence had there. 
Uh, suffice to say that this idea that one person could simply overturn an election, that's not really the right way to phrase it. It's certainly not how it goes according to the Constitution. Whether or not the vice president had the power and his authority to temporarily stop the counting of the Electoral College to allow for competing delegates or competing slates of delegates in the various states. You know, that's getting into slightly dicier territory. Again, it's beyond the confines of what we're talking about here. The point is, if you love Trump, you hate what Mike Pence did on January 6, 2021, if you don't necessarily love Trump, if you either dislike him or you simply think it's time to move on from him, your thoughts on Mike Pence might be slightly warmer. So Mike Pence is basically running, as far as I can tell, as the purest form distillation of a zombie Reaganite as I have ever seen, perhaps, in my entire time working in the political media profession full time. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean that Mike Pence is running not necessarily to be the third term of the Ronald Reagan presidency, because that would be very disrespectful to Ronald Reagan, who actually had a much more nuanced record on a lot of the issues that the zombie Reaganites actually think of him as. So, for example, Ronald Reagan had no issue whatsoever imposing tariffs on the imports of Japanese automobiles back when Japan was totally kicking Detroit's ass in the American auto industry. Those tariffs, by the way, as Wells King has written in a wonderful National Review essay a number of months ago, actually helped incentivize kind of the building out of the auto manufacturing industry throughout large swaths of the American South and states like Alabama, South Carolina. What else did Ronald Reagan do? Well, he really was not necessarily kind of the the massive war hawk that I think a lot of kind of the uniparty foreign policy establishment thinks of him as. He really did not start any new wars at all, except for this very limited incursion in Grenada. But Mike Pence is running as a zombie Reaganite, really not that different than what Tim Scott and Nikki Haley and some of these other single-digit polling jokesters are doing. But Mike Pence is running on the purest form distillation of kind of this weird vision of Ronald Reagan as this all-out absolutist libertarian pro-corporation war hawk warrior. The rhetoric that Mike Pence has used when he talks about issues like Ukraine, other foreign policy boondoggles, he is talking over and over again about how the United States must be a beacon for freedom all around the world, this framing of every foreign policy debate as one between a fight for freedom versus tyranny. I've referred to this previously as the World War Twoization of foreign policy. It's basically the idea that every foreign policy conflict is reducible to this cartoonish conception of all-out good versus all-out evil on the one hand. Mike Pence really does encapsulate that. You know what he also encapsulates? He encapsulates a bygone era within the Republican Party when big corporations, when the Fortune 500, were readily on conservative side. He doesn't fundamentally understand the notion that the paradigm is totally shifted here and that large corporations are now increasingly the enemy of the American right, of the forces of civilizational sanity more generally. So here's a quote that Mike Pence had just a few weeks ago here. He's talking here about Ron DeSantis' well-known fight against the Walt Disney Company here in Florida. This is Mike Pence. He says, quote, At the end of the day, the business of America is business, and I'm not terribly surprised to see Disney canceling a billion-dollar contract that's only going to harm people in the Orlando, Florida area. And it's one more reason why, as a limited government conservative, I've said for months now, both sides off the stand down. So he's playing the whole limited government conservative card. But 
Anyone with any kind of memory about Mike Pence should not be at all surprised that this is the kind of man who would fold like a cheap suit before massive corporate pressure. But think back to when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana back in 2015, when that state, the Hoosier state, was in the throes of a very divisive debate over their RIFRA, their state-level Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And Indiana got a ton of massive pushback from the Chamber of Commerce, from the corporate lobby. Pence handled that situation horribly. In fact, many kind of social conservatives, religious conservatives, still to this day, hold Mike Pence in something considerably less than high esteem due to the way that he completely capitulated during that fight. So if you think back, Mike Pence has a very nasty history of conflating pro-corporate simping and sycophancy with being a limited government conservative. It's a massive conflation. I think as DeSantis and others have accurately said, this is corporatism, this is not conservatism. Anyway, we will see what Mike Pence does. I don't really see his candidacy going anywhere whatsoever. Ditto for Chris Christie. Who knows why Chris Christie is getting in this? Chris Christie has talked a lot about Trump and how he came to hate Trump, again, especially after January 6th. Recall that Chris Christie actually was once extremely tight with Trump. He even prepped him for his 2020 debates. They had a bit of a falling out as well after January 6th. So, Look, if Christie is getting in this simply to try to do to Trump what he did to Rubio back in that infamous moment in a 2016 debate back in New Hampshire, I'm all for it. I mean, if you're, if you're trying to take swings at the king, you know, I think Christie is decently suited to doing that. After all, Chris Christie was basically just a, a Diet Coke version of Donald Trump before there was a Donald Trump. But Chris Christie himself is he is a deeply corrupt figure. Everyone remembers the whole Bridgegate scandal, something that ended up being litigated all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, where it was called the case of Kelly versus United States. Those images of him on the beach during the beach shutdowns where he was just on the beach chair. New Jersey is an infamously corrupt state. There was there were a lot of skeletons in Chris Christie's closet, notwithstanding the obvious fact that, you know, this man has not been politically relevant in, what, eight or nine years? I mean, the whole thing is crazy here. So anyway, that's our 2024 update. Hard to see any of these guys going anywhere. This race, as far as I'm concerned, continues to be a two-horse race, but we obviously will continue to follow it closely here on this program. So let's take it to a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So one final thing that I want to talk to you about today is something that my friend Will Scharf and I launched last week. We launched a new grassroots coalition called Jews Against Soros. So it's kind of self-explanatory. Go to JewsAgainstSoros.com. I'll plug that in later as well. But let me kind of unpack to you where we're coming from here. George Soros, as the listeners of the show no doubt know, is one of, if not the single largest funder of various egregious far-left causes the world over. So he was born in Hungary. He stirs up a lot of trouble in Hungary. 
Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, usually gets accused of anti-Semitism whenever he calls out George Soros and all the various things that Soros does to undermine the Hungarian nation state. Soros, who is Jewish by by birth, uh, also funds a lot of very sordid activities in the, in the state of Israel. He is the largest donor, if I'm not mistaken, to J Street, which is the horrific anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian group here in the United States. Various Soros-connected entities have even been funded to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is an internationally recognized terrorist organization. Uh, he stirs up a ton of trouble here in the United States, as anyone who is paying any attention whatsoever to our current politics knows there is no there are no shortage of prosecutors across the country that George Soros funds. This is the so-called progressive prosecutor project, these reform prosecutors who basically get into office on a platform of not prosecuting. I mean, think about that. It's literally the literal platform of these Soros-funded DAs is a prosecutor who does not prosecute. And anyone who has spent any time in cities with these Soros-backed DAs knows exactly what we are talking about here. I'm thinking of cities like Chicago under Cook County, Illinois, DA Kim Fox. I'm thinking of cities like St. Louis, Missouri under DA Kim Gardner. Alvin Bragg, of course. Alvin Bragg's been in the news a lot recently pertaining to former President Trump. Alvin Bragg in Manhattan County in, in Manhattan in New York County, New York. Alvin Bragg is a Soros-backed prosecutor. Out west, you had Chesa Boudin, who, thank goodness, was recalled by San Francisco. I mean, mean, imagine how much of a Looney Tunes communist you have to be to be recalled by the people of San Francisco. He was a Soros-backed guy, Gascon in Los Angeles. The, The list goes on and on and on. But here's how this playbook goes by now. This playbook goes that whenever someone, usually of a center right bent, has the temerity to call out George Soros, and in the United States, typically, at least recently, for calling out these Soros-backed prosecutors, the allegations of anti-Semitism inevitably come pouring in here. So last year, Ron DeSantis found himself in a scuffle against Warren, the Tampa Bay area prosecutor. DeSantis actually removed Warren. That is a currently pending litigation. DeSantis has, has thus far prevailed. But when he did that, he, he got accused of kind of playing the Jew card. Marco Rubio, around that time last year, similar allegations for publicly decrying the role of George Soros in America, public safety. Even Elon Musk, just a few weeks ago, found himself similarly in hot water, where he effectively said that George Soros is an evil man. And then all the usual suspects said, oh, you can't say that. I mean, it's, it's an anti-Semitic dog whistle, blah, 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 blah. All right. A, a few things to kind of underscore here. One is, as I already mentioned, Soros is a massive, massive funder of anti-Jewish, anti-Israel causes. The man is a gargantuan funder to J Street, a horrific anti-Israel organization, an organization that literally exists for the sole purpose of providing Democrats outside cover to spew anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian propaganda bile. He he is literally, like I said, been linked to anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian terrorist organizations. And that's not even getting into his, shall we say, checkered history of growing up in Nazi-occupied Hungary, 
a lot of people allege that his family were Nazi collaborationists and that they worked with the Nazis to, ra- to round up some of the local Hungarian Jews. That particular conversation is a little outside the confines of our conversation here today. But George Soros is in no position whatsoever to try to play the Jew card. Furthermore, the left cannot have this both ways. You know, I am old enough to remember, before he passed away, about two and a half years ago now, Sheldon Adelson, the, and may his memory be a blessing, the former major mega donor to Republican Party conservative pro-Israel Zionist causes, I remember during the 2012-2016 Republican presidential primaries where the left over and over again would openly, nakedly decry the alleged influence of Sheldon Adelson's checkbook in Republican politics and in American politics, for that matter, more generally speaking. I can recall some headline, I think it was a New York Times headline, about how all the Republican presidential candidates in one of those cycles were asked to, quote, kiss the ring of Sheldon Adelson. So whether it was Adelson, whether it's Paul Singer, who, of course, is still alive, similarly a major Jewish donor to right-of-center causes, the, the left cannot have it both ways. You cannot play the Jew card on the one hand, but then on the other hand, it's somehow anti-Semitic. And again, all that is in addition to Soros's baggage, which we just discussed uh, about the fact that he funds all these horrific anti-Jewish, anti-Israel causes. The state of Israel, it is, it is worth noting, especially the current Netanyahu government, despises George Soros. In fact, after Elon Musk's recent comments and when the allegation of anti-Semitism started being hurled his way, it was Ami Shikli, who was the Israeli government's diaspora minister, who went out and publicly defended Elon Musk. So the Netanyahu government literally defended Elon Musk and said, no, actually, Elon Musk is causing a lot of problems here in Israel. You should be free to criticize him. So all that is context. And so my, my buddy Will Sharf and I, Will Sharf is currently running for attorney general of Missouri. We've been friends for years, similar backgrounds, Jewish conservatives, legal, blah, blah, blah. You know, this started as like a joke between us, but we ultimately lo- formally launched this thing, Jews Against Soros. Again, JewsAgainstSoros.com and has a sign up sheet. You can go ahead and sign up to stay informed there. And we basically just wanted to cobble together a grassroots coalition of patriotic Americans, probably disproportionately Jews, obviously, who have had enough of this idea that you can't criticize this evil man, George Soros, because by accident of birth, he happens to be a certain religion, certain ethnicity, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous when you think about it. I mean, so many people who criticize George Soros don't even realize that he's Jewish. I mean, his name is George Soros, not to be so pedantic here, but, you know, his name is not like Shlomo Rosenblatt. I mean, it's not like an overly stereotypical Jewish name to begin with. You know, look, I'm obviously Jewish myself. I'm allowed to say these things, but it's utterly ridiculous. I mean, when you put your name out there at a public level, when you are playing ball at that level, billionaire giving hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, you are absolutely subject to legitimate criticism. Moreover, even stripping aside his massive financial contributions, when you put yourself out there in general, if I scroll my Twitter feed and I see people criticizing something that I said or wrote, do I automatically assume that the person is anti-Semitic? No. I'm sure some of them, a small percentage probably are. Just like a small percentage of people criticizing Soros probably do 
do so on anti-Semitic grounds, the whole protocols of elders of Zion, conspiratorial garbage. And my co-founder, Will Scharf, now would be the very first people to call out that garbage for the disgusting drivel that it is. But again, if you put yourself out there, you are subject to criticism, period. And it's worth noting that when we launched this thing last Wednesday, we had a brief press release, which you can find at the Twitter account for Jews Against Soros, which is twitter.com slash Jews. We had a brief press release, and then Will and I both did long tweet threads. It's worth noting that Amichai Shikli, who I mentioned earlier, he's the Netanyahu government's diaspora minister, he actually liked a lot of my tweets in my thread. So it seems like the Israeli government, for whatever that's worth, actually supports our efforts as well. You know, we, we ended up getting attacked by some of the usual suspects, Soha Aretz, which is the furthest left newspaper in all of Israel, um, you know, accused Will Sharf and I of kosherizing Orban and the far right's greatest dream of criticizing Soros. I mean, get real, guys. Get real. You are allowed to criticize George Soros, and the fact that he happens to be Jewish is totally irrelevant. That's really it. It is really that simple. But I got to tell you, the number of signups, the emails, the messages, the retweets, so many media articles have written this thing up. We've gotten write-ups in the United States, Israel, which I mentioned, Hungary. I saw some, I saw some Japanese accounts tweeting at me, actually. So Soros' name is out there. He is properly viewed as wielding disproportionately evil influence on the world stage. And I would like to think that Will and I have done a mitzvah here by getting this group out there and basically providing cover, really, to pro-rule of law, pro-law and order politicians, elected officials, prosecutors who want to criticize George Soros' influence here in the United States without without being falsely accused of anti-Semitism. So that's Jews Against Soros. Once again, you can check it out at JewsAgainstSoros.com. Fun little side project that I have been involved with over the past few weeks. So that'll do it for today's show. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Once again, you can find this program on Apple, Spotify, or if you get your podcast, leave us that five-star review. Write us a comment. We promise that we will read it. So once again, I'm Josh Hammer. I will see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The Debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The Parting Shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.